Welcome. This is the ESOP Guy. We are on a journey to an ESOP. Welcome to our podcast. For those that are joining for the first time, this podcast is really for those that are thinking they might want to use an employee stock ownership plan. Um, it could be that they're wanting to build their succession plan. It could be that they are working towards an ultimate exit. I know a lot of companies that use an ESOP just for simply the, the tax benefits to help grow the business and retain a lot of the capital. So there's a lot of different ways to use it. So this podcast is really there to help you um, navigate through maybe all the questions that you might have through uh, for an ESOP. And so if this is your first time joining, again, thank you and welcome. If you have questions or want to look at our other episodes, please go to our website at journeytoanesop.com. So today's topic, um, I think is a fairly important one. And I will say that I haven't really touched on this much just because the main focus of our podcast has been on the journey to an ESOP. Um, but a lot of times I'm getting into these conversations with people as we're in the middle of the ESOP process. And I, so I think it's really important. The topic today is going to be considerations for your post ESOP. And that just basically means what should you be thinking about once the ESOP actually closes and transacts? And so to do that, we're going to interview Katie Harden. She is uh, with our firm, Berman Hopkins. And Katie and I have worked together for many years. Uh, she's a big part of our ESOP team. She has extensive experience at working with ESOP companies. And really for, for us, she manages through the multiple compliance areas that that are really sometimes complex. And I think for me, you know, there's certain things that I, I'm an expert in and there's other things I'm not. Um, mostly what Katie does is what I'm not an expert in. So getting her opinion and or her experience is going to be really, I think, worth it as you go through the process of listening to this episode today. Um, her experience includes ESOP accounting, which is um, absolutely necessary. Um, and it's not super straightforward. She also works through managing the uh, on a, on the ESOP company side financial statement audits or financial statement reviews to help companies um, work through that whole process. So again, they may you may have already had an audit or a review prior to an ESOP, but there are things that that need to be considered after you set up your ESOP. She works actively with board of directors for ESOP companies, and mostly in that. In that space, she's presenting the board to the board of directors, the financial statements, anything that she's seeing and, and gets engaged in conversations about trustees, gets engaged in conversations about um, all sorts of things. So we're going to get into some of that. I think that's going to be um, pretty interesting. And then the other part is just auditing ESOP plan documents, um, which is a requirement. If um, your company has an ESOP, you're going to have a retirement um, uh, policy compliance requirement that you're going to have. And it's different for each company based on the size of your company. So we're going to get into all of that today. Um, to, so again, um, thank you so much, Katie, for joining the podcast. Um, why don't you just kind of give us a little bit of your background in the ESOP world? Um, so I'm uh, a senior manager here at Berman Hopkins, and I've been with the firm for about 13 years. Um, and I work with several employee-owned companies, and it, it really is a, a whole picture type of relationship when we're working with employee-owned companies because you really have two different entities to be considered here, and that's the company itself and then also the ESOP, which has its own compliance requirements as a standalone entity. Um, so my background is really working with companies to 
understand the accounting, but also understand the compliance because there's a lot of DOL and IRS rules um, that play into how these things are accounted for and the different audit requirements, review requirements. And so that's really where my space is, is just understanding those compliance requirements and working with clients to make sure that they are meeting all those compliance requirements, but also understanding the, the accounting behind it as well. Yeah. So how did you ever, was your dream when you were a kid to become an ESOP expert? <laughs> um, no. No, that's crazy. <laughs> Me either. Um, I, uh, I'm always, I've always been kind of a nerd. Um, and so really one of my favorite parts of accounting and working with clients is really taking complex accounting issues and and breaking them down and making them understandable and attainable for my clients. You know, not everybody's as nerdy about stuff as I am. And so the ESOP space was a very natural place for me to go because the accounting and the compliance requirements are pretty complex. Um, and, and the clients that we're working with are not necessarily a technical accountants. You know, they're CEOs and managers and, you know, um, construction managers, right? These people who are taking over the, the ownership of these companies. And so it's just been very natural for me to use my skill set as, as really a technical guru and, and bring it into a space where people can understand what's going on with this ESOP and really understand the compliance requirements without having to be the same level of nerd that I am. So, yeah. Well, I think what, what, definitely separates you from other nerds. I, I'm not going to be mean to you, but is that you do have the ability to, to kind of understand that the technical part of it, but been able to relay that to people in a way that they can understand because it's hard enough to deal with all the other financial statement tax requirements in any company, but you layer in the ESOP stuff. And so you need somebody that can really help, you know, just make it, explain it in layman's terms is kind of what I'm saying. So you're great at that. And and it really helps. It helps that. So <clears throat> when you think about this topic and this issue, um, how important is it, or in your opinion, for as we're going through the ESOP process, for people to be thinking about the compliance area and, and really, you know, what's going to happen next? And I know some people, a lot of my clients, you know, really range. Some people are super nervous about it and, you know, a lot of anxiety. Others are like, well, we'll just get there when we get there and we'll take care of it. How important is it for people to be thinking about that, you know, as they go through the process? I think it's really important. Um, obviously, you know, I, I work on the backside of these transactions. And so I, I think it's the most important thing to think about, right? <laughs> um, I think one of the most important things that people can think about as they're going into these transactions is who's going to be kind of your champion or who's going to be the person who's really worrying about compliance, accounting, things like that on the backside. And, and they might not necessarily be deeply involved in the transaction itself, um, but really having that person who knows like, hey, on day one, we have these things to worry about. Um, you know, we have all these notes to consider and all these compliance requirements to consider. And we need that person to be ready to really take on that project of understanding and moving forward with the plan once it's in place. No, that's ex excellent. I mean, we, we're not even getting into the topic yet, but um, but just starting off, I think that's a really good idea. I, I see that champion sometimes being the controller or CFO. Who do you see that being normally? 
that normally is who it is just because they're going to have a little more technical knowledge of, of the accounting behind it, or, or they're going to be able to get there with the technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes you don't have a person that's extremely technical in the group, or, you know, sometimes that person is maybe the person that's trying to leave. Um, so, you know, I think naturally someone kind of rises to the top during the transaction a lot of times. Um, and so that's the person who's really keeping up and really understanding the transaction as it's going. And so really just making sure that person understands that, you know, there's more to it after the fact. Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good point. And we're, um, in the process that we go through, I know that for me, advising a client, we're, we're likely going to be identifying some of those key people early on. And just so that you can kind of, as, as the owner, maybe as the selling shareholder, maybe has anxiety related to it, um, getting them up to speed. Sometimes we'll, Katie and I'll have questions from owners um, really early in the process and we'll start dealing with it. But I, I think that's a good place to start. Um, what, what are the things that if you think about for brand new ESOP companies, so these are companies that weren't ESOPs, they, they become ESOPs. Um, in your experience, what should they really have to deal with first related to the, when I say the Department of Labor, DOL, uh, and, and Internal Revenue Service? What sort, of, what sort of things should they be thinking about at the very beginning of their timeline? Um, I think the first thing post-transaction that someone would really need to focus on, this is a little outside of the compliance space, but making sure you have a solid team of people who are going to help you understand what those compliance requirements are. Mm-hmm. And so having that independent trustee, having a TPA who really specializes in, you know, ESOP transactions and ESOP plans um, and, and any other advisors you think you need, um, you know, of course you want to have a good accountant who really understands ESOP accounting, mm-hmm. but really just having those people in place, there's a very specific timeline for filing and making loan payments and and all of those requirements. So first step, get that that team in place and understand the timeline. Usually with your plan, you're going to have a little bit of time before you have to do any filings with the DOL, filings with the IRS, anything like that. So getting that team in place is really key. Yeah. I agree with that. So, and one thing that I would add to that is, is those team members like the TPA and the trustee. One of the things I'm looking for from the TPA, um, is it, is to help them publish a timeline for the client specifically so that, and the timeline itself would be, this is what you're going to do client. This is what we're going to do as the TPA. And it just breaks down all of those, um, tasks. And, and part of it too, that my experience is, is there's the, some non-compliance things too that you're going to want to naturally do. And and that's like planning your rollout meeting. Um, how are you going to tell the employees? All of those things are going to be somewhat important. Um, when you get to the first real DOL or IRS requirement, what are you, what are you seeing in that regard? Generally speaking, one of the first DOL requirements you're going to see is that there is a tax return, the form 5500 that's required to be filed by the plan itself. And so a lot of people think, oh, well, this is a a non-tax entity. um, So that's it. They're done with the IRS. And and that's not true. Um, And then, of course, there's a lot of 
compliance requirements as far as communication with your participants. And that really is an excellent tool in relation to what you're talking about and that rollout and getting employees excited about this new opportunity that they have. And so you want to make sure that that conversation that you're having with your employees is really flowing into those communications that you're having with them officially through your through your DOL requirements because it really shows them like, hey, this is real. This is a real opportunity. This is real stock that I own in the company. Yeah. And so it, even though it's a compliance requirement, it can be a really powerful tool related to this communication as well. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's dig into that a bit deeper too because as we start thinking about it, we can kind of categorize some of these. When we think about the ESOP as a retirement plan and it falls under ERISA, there are specific requirements like you've mentioned. It's going to have to file a 5,500 tax return. Um, what other requirements would you have? Let's just say that company um, – in addition to that, regarding the, the the fact that it is a retirement plan, um, if it's got you know in excess of a hundred employees, and, and how does the uh, kind of getting into the whole audit side of the ESOP plan? That is the magic number. Is if you have over a hundred active participants in the plan, um, you will probably have an audit requirement, and so. From a compliance standpoint, it's important to remember that you really have two entities now. You have the company, which may require an audit or a review, probably a minimum of a review for your annual valuation. But then you also have this ESOP plan, which is a standalone legal entity. And so if that plan has more than 100 active participants, then you will be required to have an audit of the plan itself. And that audit will need to be attached to your form 5500 that goes to the DOL each year. Something else I just want to point out about this, a lot of people don't realize that those 5500s and the audits that are attached to them are out there for the whole world to see. Those are all public records. So that's just something to keep in mind is that you know when you're doing this audit, it's really out there for people to see. Yeah, just like the 401k. That you're that you're probably yep. used to doing. Um, yep. When we say ESOP audit um, plan, what we want to make sure we do is we really define that that's an audit of the actual plan itself. So, okay. a couple questions about that, and, and just you know thoughts or, or whatever. What what happens if I'm a, over 100 people and I don't do the audit? What happens to us as a company or whatever that hypothetical company might be? So. When you're going to file your 5500, um, it's really easy to tell when you need an audit because if you file a short form versus a long form, the long form requires the audit. Mm-hmm. And so if you do file that 55 or the 5500 with the DOL and you don't have an audit attached, you're going to get communication back from the DOL letting you know that your filing is incomplete. Um, and so from there, you know, Generally, they give you some time to to fix the error or fix whatever it is that you're missing, but uh, you, you don't want to ignore it for sure because it's only a matter of time before the DOL loses patience and then you start getting into fines and penalties and those get real ugly real fast. Yeah, and we've had we've had some clients like that um, come to us where they have not been in compliance and then the, the thing is, is trying to get them caught up as soon as possible because the fines and penalties are are very um, punitive and 
you just don't want that. So partly nobody wants to, you know, be outside of compliance, but it's just kind of one of those things where people might think, oh, I didn't do it. You know, what, what happens to me next? So um, you definitely, thing, go ahead. Um, the other thing to make sure of is, you know, don't be afraid of the DOL. If you find yourself in a position where, oh no, I didn't realize I needed an audit. We're short on time. You know, the DOL actually wants people to do things the right way and wants these plans to be in compliance. And so they have some voluntary correction plans that you can get involved with that helps mitigate some of those um, some of those penalties and fines. So if you find yourself in a situation where you know there's going to be some type of non-compliance, especially with the filing, um, there, there's things you can do to mitigate those things. Um, it, it's you, you don't want to just ignore the problem and not reach out to somebody who can help you with some of those voluntary correction plans. Yeah. Um, just as a just a kind of a basic question, but the people that do the professionals that do the 5500s and the audits are they primarily CPA firms? The audits, for sure. The mm-hmm. audits are independent audit reports. You have a CPA firm would have to do that audit. The, the 5500 is generally prepared by your third-party administrator or TPA. Um, and so that that audit process, the your auditor and your TPA should be working very closely together, and it should really be a joint effort between the two. Your TPA is really keeping track of your individual participants and what, how much stock they have, how much money they have in the plan. And that's part of the audit process is we're making sure that your participants have what they should have, that their stock's being allocated properly. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a quality TPA and you have a good CPA doing your audit, you're going to, they're going to work together directly to make sure that those records are correct. Um, and you just want to make sure that you're involved in the process so you know that everybody's doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. L- let's just say, what happens if your your CPA doesn't have a lot? Maybe they do pension plan audits, but they don't do really any ESOP plan audits. Um, what would you say they the company should do or look at? Because I'm just kind of throwing it out as a, a loaded question in the sense that, you know, that could be a problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, they, um, if you, if you, you know, obviously we go to conferences, we have a lot of experience with ESOPs. We're specifically going out and, you know, always getting training on, on what the most, um, up-to-date information is on ESOPs and ESOP accounting. And the ESOP audits and ESOPs are a very high risk area as far as the DOL is concerned. Um, and, and a lot of the reason for that is because there are, Unfortunately, um, CPAs out there that are doing audits of ESOP companies and also audits of ESOPs to go with these 5500s that don't really understand the the complexity of ESOP accounting. And so if you if you are working with a CPA, maybe they're doing your 401k, but they don't have any experience with ESOPs, it might be a good idea to just make sure that you at least have an advisor who does understand ESOP accounting to that maybe, you can turn to as, as just a double check. Yeah, just to maybe review it. I know like for us, one thing that comes up and I get dragged into it every year is is the ESOP auditor should review the business valuation every year, which is one major difference between 401k plans and an ESOP plan is you have you have an independent valuation firm 
providing the valuation to the trustee. The trustee reviews it, but as part of the ESOP audit, we're reviewing it as well just to see consistency from last year. Other things like, you know, d- did this person have the qualifications, you know, to do the audit or to do the valuation? So um, I know that, that that needs to be, you know, part of the ESOP audit engagement. Is there anything else that are that's specific and distinct from the 401k? Well, the valuation, understanding the value of the stock is huge. Um, we're very fortunate here because our team is so robust and we have a valuation person that we can, you know, go right down the hall to if we have questions. <laughs> he's, he's running. Um, he's running right now. Um, yeah, but it, it, it is an important important aspect of it. Is there anything else that gets done on that or is it a lot more similar to a 401k? No, the, the it, coming back to that allocation, how stock is allocated to the participants is very okay. unique. You know, in a, in a 401k, people are putting their own money in. Maybe they're getting a match from the company. They're putting it into their account. It, it's very easy to line up one-to-one. Um, you know, these stock allocations that are happening in the ESOPs are complicated and and they're really married in with the corporate accounting side and what the contributions are and things like that so you know those allocations can be complicated and if you don't understand the plan document and Mm -hmm. really be able to read into it and determine how that allocation should be working for your plan specifically it's going to be difficult to understand what it is you should be doing as part of the audit yeah so let's go let's let that's a great segue into this other part of I wanted to get into is um so we're going backwards a little bit and we've closed the ESOP deal and now you know again compliance requirements one of the things I know we get into is um looking at the loans and when I say the loans are the notes I mean the outside notes which are the notes for the the company's borrowing the um, money for from a bank or for the from the sellers, and then the inside notes, which is the ESOP comp- the ESOP entity, um, bar are, are buying the stock from the company. So we have these two different types of notes. So um, go into that a little bit as far as booking those notes correctly, because going going backwards, it's like one of the first things we do is we'll look at the plan document, or I'll have you look at it and make sure that you have all that figured out um, and terms of making sure it's all set up correctly. I'm I'm glad you brought this up because this is by far one of the most confusing topics, you know, when I'm talking through people and talking through their transaction, this gets confusing really fast. So there is two different notes and, and it's important to understand that in most ESOP transactions, there's really two pieces to it. You're buying the stock back from your owners and then, and sometimes the company's buying that stock. Sometimes, it, you know, the ESOP is buying that stock back, but it's being bought back from the owners. But then you're also, there's a transaction between the company and the ESOP to sell that stock to the ESOP. And so that outside note is when you're pulling in the stock from outside, from your outside owners. And then your inside note is when you're, when you're selling stock between the company and the ESOP. And so I think the reason it gets confusing is because these are two separate entities. And, and, you know, we stress that a lot, like you have your company and then you have your ESOP plan. And those are two separate entities. However, on the accounting side, um, GAAP 
really considers them to be related parties and, and related in a very unique way. And so the reason it gets confusing is because that outside note is very traditional. Maybe you owe a bank, maybe you owe the former owner. It's recorded as debt, and, and that's very very typical and, and understandable by people that might not be familiar with the accounting. But that inside note, that loan that's happening between the company and the ESOL, because GAAP um, considers those related parties and, and really interrelated parties, it's not recorded as a note receivable from the ESOP. It's really recorded as a as a portion of your equity. And we refer to that as unearned ESOP shares in the equity section of your balance sheet. And that gets really confusing because you have this note that you have to contribute and then the ESOP is going to pay it, but there's no note from an accounting perspective to apply that to. Um, and so that is one of the one of the more difficult concepts to really understand and and yeah, makes it difficult because it, it really you have to think about it as two separate notes. But from a gap perspective, you really don't see two separate notes on your balance sheet. That's correct. And that's um, it's, and it's hard to kind of just talk through that without people asking more questions, because I can imagine if somebody's hearing this for the first time, it's like, you know, what do you mean? And so let me let me go backwards a little bit. When when Katie says gap, she means generally accepted accounting principles. And I say that because I know some people probably are not the financial people. And so that just and other people that are, they're like, hey, that's obvious. Um, but gap is what we have to follow when we're when we're doing the financial statements and making sure that they're put together correctly. The um, the complicated part of this is you have this idea that you have a note that has these payments. Now the inside note, the payments on that inside note are really there to mechanically allocate the shares. It's a, the money actually does go into an account and it comes, but it comes right back into the company. So it's really a non-cash um, outlay. Um, but the outside notes, they're actually going to get paid like other debt. So it's just going to be like any other debt that you might have um, that the company is going to owe. So those are, those are distinctly the differences, but what happens is the balance sheet, um, for an ESOP company does have to show as, as Katie alluded to, like it's going to show the debt for those outside notes. And it's going to show, show this unearned ESOP account, which is going to be a negative amount. And so those are going to, those are going to um, take a balance sheet and really make it look really, really not as good as it did before. Right, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you kind of get, um, this is getting into the nerdy stuff, but you, you kind of get a double negative hit in your equity because you're, you have these big loans to the outside owner. And that is a deduction of the equity in the company to, to take out these loans. But then this unearned ESOP shares, like you said, is negative equity. So that's also hitting your equity in a negative way. So just a, another, when you're gathering that team of experts, one of the most important things that you can do with that team of experts is use them to make sure that the banks that you're working with, your surety agents, anybody who might be looking at your financial statements is really going to understand what the effect is on your balance sheet before that transaction happens. Because the last thing you want to do is, is make your balance sheet look really gnarly and then send it to your banker and they weren't expecting it No, uh, or they don't understand it. Yeah. And then kind of our, our standard process as when we do ESOP work is and the ESOP process is to go ahead and do a pro forma balance sheet 
and then way early in the process, go over that with the bank, go over that with the bonding company, whoever might need to see it just so they can see the impact of it. And there's, there's going to be different ways to look at the balance sheet if you have subordinate debt to the bank, but at the same time, it's still under gap. There's nothing you can do. I mean, it will look like that when the financials are put together. So, so the advice here is, is do a pro forma balance sheet as you go through the process, share it early on with your, your third parties that you're relying on and um, make sure that that works. And sometimes we do that and we're like, Hey, let's go back and, and, and change the way we're structuring the ESOP. It may be better as a partial ESOP so that we have less of an impact on that balance sheet, um, in, in stage a transaction as opposed to doing a hundred percent. So there's a, there's a lot of ways, but we don't want to be doing that at the last hour when we've all set it, set it all up, or we don't want it to have any problems after the ESOP is set up. So. Well, and I know I'm kind of encroaching into your territory as far as the transaction, but that's why it's so important to really start thinking about this early because if you're if you're working on your ESOP transaction and you have a few years before you're looking to retire or make this change, then you have the option to do that staged transaction rather than just having to do 100% right away. No, that's a good point. So, so another segue into the inside note, and this is going to get into another idea, bigger picture idea for people to be thinking about post ESOP as considerations is, is what repurchase liability is. And when I mentioned the inside note, um, what I was saying before, the inside note is going to provide the methodology of the allocation. So it'll be like, if it's a longer term inside note, 30 years versus a 10 year inside note, that means those shares are going to be allocated on a 10-year note a lot quicker so that people will build a lot more shares too quickly. So so a lot of times that inside note is stretched out longer so that we can manage repurchase liability. But what I want to get into now with Katie is just like, because she's done a lot of work with the board of directors. So, um, and I want to set it up correctly. So like the, any ESOP that sells the controlling interest of the stock is going to have a board of directors generally with at least one independent board member. An ESOP that sells a non-controlling interest is going to have a board of directors, but it not it won't necessarily have an independent board member unless that company just wants one. Um, in addition to that, the board um, is also interacting with an ongoing independent trustee. It's very common. Now, in Katie's world, what she's doing is she's going and presenting to the board of directors. And what I thought would be helpful is just kind of talk a little bit about your experience in talking to the board. Um, what sort of topics do they kind of focus on? And I kind of teed up repurchase liability because it's a, it's a, it's a major one. Um, but just going into that a little bit would be helpful because people are like, what are the, what's the board looking at normally? So there, there really is a life cycle to ESOPs. And so starting at the beginning, if you have a new transaction, um, the role of the board is really to oversee and make sure that that transition is happening the way that they, they need it to be happening for their company. And so much of that, as you said earlier, has to do with the communication and really getting the idea of the ESOP out there to the employees and, and making that cultural transition. And so from a compliance and accounting perspective, early on in the ESOP life cycle, that's, you know, zero to three or four years. The board is really focused on making sure the compliance stuff is happening. Of course, you want to make sure that all of the compliance work is happening correctly and that you have that good, great team of advisors in place. 
but really their focus is on getting the ESOP going. Mm-hmm. Usually, um, and, and so backing up when we're talking about repurchase obligation, <clears throat> that comes back to the idea that over the life of this inside note, you're allocating stock to your participants. And then someday they're going to retire. And when they do retire, the company has an obligation to fund the buyback of their stock so that they can take their retirement cash. And so that's referred to as our repurchase obligation. Usually in, in the ESOP world, you have a few years of a buffer between the transaction and when those repurchase obligations are going to start. It's usually written into the plan document. But once you get into year five and beyond of your ESOP, you're really going to need to start thinking, and the board of directors specifically is really going to need to start thinking about, okay, what's the long-term picture here? And so the repurchase obligation is not necessarily going to kick in in year five, but the reason it's important to start thinking about it at that point in time is because it might kick in in year eight, And you want to make sure that you have the cash available for that repurchase obligation. And potentially you want to make sure you have that cash already in the plan. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different uh, ways that you can go about these repurchase obligations. And there's a lot of decisions, of course, that need to be made because of the different options. And so asking questions like, is the company going to be buying the stock back or the plan? And then if the company is going to be buying the stock back, how do we get that stock back into the plan for future employees? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah. There's also a lot of questions around um, once you get into year five and beyond, if you have a lot of employees who are no longer with the company who are holding stock, you have options to really get that stock back into the hands of the company or get that stock back into the hands of the plan so it can be reallocated to the participants that are current employees. Mm -hmm. Um, The last thing you want is to have your stock be appreciating and employees that don't work there anymore reaping the benefit of that. So those are the types of, those are the types of overarching issues that the board should really be paying attention to at that part in the life cycle of the ESOP is really start thinking through what are these decisions that are going to be made. Yeah, exactly. And and it sounds kind of like as you think about it from just, common sense, the board's going to be concerned about what affects the company from a, from a financial standpoint, for sure, like a cash flow standpoint. So, so clearly the repurchase liability is a cash flow obligation. Um, so it would make, it would make sense that other things like the warrant coming up and being and maturing and, and managing the, the, the outlay of paying off the warrant is going to be an issue. Um, as, as Monk, as, as, other things too, like that. I mean, so, so I'd imagine like your experience with working with the boards is just, you, you know, you're, you're in a, like you said, you're in a life cycle. So what, at what stage is the ESOP company if it's starting out, but if mature ESOP company, you're probably going to be more engaged in a lot of these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there's a lot of really proactive decisions that need to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the warrants and the SARS. That's another thing that people, don't necessarily consider when you're really first making that transition for a plan. Um, From an accounting perspective, accounting for those instruments starts right away. You might not be thinking about the obligation, the cash obligation that comes with those until five, 10 years, whenever they might mature or or be available for the for follow-up transaction. But from an accounting perspective, they got to get recorded 
And those are things that are going to get trued up every year too. So real quick question on that side. So if, but the company doesn't in that fiscal period owe anything on the warrant or the SAR, how is it, is it not, it's not treated as a liability or what, how is it treated? Or is it just footnoted? Um, it, in the initial couple of periods, you're probably, they're probably not going to have any value. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes they are going to be treated as a liability before that cash obligation is actually due. Okay. And there's going to be compensation expense uh, that's going to be recorded in the periods leading up to when the cash liability is due, which is a good thing because the last thing you want to do is have a $5 million warrant come due and you didn't have it on your balance sheet and nobody, nobody knew it was coming. So no, that's, that would be bad. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think there are people that have questions about, you know, the impact of that, you know, going forward and how that again comes back to just like we we're talking about at the beginning of of booking your transaction, it comes back to what your balance sheet's going to look like, you know, and mm-hmm. and so if that's going to affect the balance sheet, the bank's going to have to need to know and understand the way that that warrant and the SAR are structured, you know, in in the end, at the end of the day, where that liability will actually come to be owed, and the company will have this this big cash flow re- responsibility or cash outflow responsibility. So, um, and it can be difficult because oftentimes that obligation is going to come due just as you're starting to also have this repurchase obligation come due. So, you really you don't want to be surprised by that stuff. You really want to start thinking about it earlier. Yeah. Well, one one point I'll make as we kind of finish, because I know we're getting close to the end of the time, is, you know, one thing that happens in, in almost every transaction I do is that we do, we end up negotiating at some time period when the company is going to have a repurchase liability study. Um, it's it's pretty much built in all, all the term sheets that I'm working on now. And it makes sense because, you know, the company, you know, of course, is going to want to do that. But at the same time, the fact that it's mandated in the negotiation and it's a requirement, just like an independent board member or whatever other requirements we have is, is good. It's good for everybody because we want at the end of the day, even though we're selling, we still want a sustainable ESOP company that can make sure it it can pay all of its um, potential obligations that it has coming down the road. So, so that's just kind of a point to make when we look at the idea of repurchase liability, that's a lot more orchestrated. The other thing to consider is on the flip side, again, another compliance requirement is related to there are limits on the amount of money you can put into the plan each year based on your payroll amounts in the company. There's a, there's a 25% limit. So if you do need to get some cash into the plan for a repurchase obligation very quickly, you have that 25% limit that you have to deal with. So it's just, there's so many, there really is so many compliance requirements and you really have to look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and that's, again, yeah, and that's a good point sure have experts. because now that we go into, you know, one application of that for an existing ESOP company is now that we go into a potential recession, um, you have, you have like just this hypothetical scenario of, hey, the company had to lay off some people. So payroll has shrunk, but we also, they also have a purchase liability and they have to contribute more to the plan, even though they might have the cash to do it. If you, if you run into that 25% limitation, um, that can create a problem. So planning is really important. So when a company goes through the process of say, Hey, we got to lay off people, you know, at the same time, they got to look at all of those, 
um, all the angles of a business decision that can be a lot more complex. So having an experienced ESOP um, team of people on that board and advisors is really is really quite critical to being a successful ESOP company. So um, I think that's I don't know if you have any more to say about that part, but I think that just brought up that to, in my mind. Well, the only other thing I was going to say is just kind of bringing it back to the beginning is is that's that's why it's so important to have that champion and, and that person really thinking through initially the ESOP transaction, but knowing that it's going to be a long-term commitment for them to really understand the obligations of the ESOP and be able to bring that information to the board because oftentimes your board members are not CFOs, not controllers. They're not necessarily going to have that in-depth knowledge. Yeah. And, and you should definitely get that as a company from the uh, trustee, the from the TPA, from um, your ESOP attorney, from, of course, your advisors at, at, at the outside level, too. So um, I think that's a good place to end because I know we, we could go into this topic for, for a long time. But um, I think that's those things are really important. I think what Katie and I were doing is really distressing some things that um, that need to be thought of and don't get really talked about a lot in the beginning steps, but I think they do come out as we go, as we go through the whole process and, and actually do a, uh, the closing. So with that, um, Katie, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate you jumping on our, our podcast. And um, I think it was very helpful um, with, with what you have and experience to share all that. So. Well, thank you for having me. This was nice. Great. So for everybody else, thanks again for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, share it with a friend. Um, go to our website at journeytoanesop.com to, to check out all the episodes. And with all of that, thank you again for listening. We look forward to our next step on this journey to an ESOP. Mm-hmm.